Chapter Nineteen of the Just and the Unjust by Von Kester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Nineteen. Shrimplin to the rescue. Beyond the flats and the railroad tracks, and over across the new high iron bridge, was a low-lying region much affected by the drivers of dump carts, whose activity was visibly attested by the cinders, the ashes, the tin cans, the staved-in barrels, and the lidless boxes that everywhere met the eye. On the verge of this waste, which civilization had builded and shaped with its discarded odds and ends, were the meager beginnings of a poor suburb. Here an enterprising landlord had erected a solitary row of slab-sided dwellings of a uniform ugliness, and had given to each a single coat of yellow paint of such exceeding thinness that it was possible to determine by the whiter daubs of putty showing through just where every nail had been driven. Only the very poorest or the most shiftless of Mount Hope's population found a refuge in this quarter. The Montgomery's being strictly eligible, it was but natural that Joe should have taken up his abode here on the day the first of the eight houses had been finished. Joe was burdened by no troublesome convictions touching the advantages of a gravelly soil or a southern exposure, and the word sanitation, had it been spoken in his presence, would have conveyed no meaning to his mind. He had never heard of germs, and he had as little prejudice concerning stagnant water as he had predilection for clear water. He knew in a general way that all water was wet, but further than this he gave the element no thought. Thus it came about that his was the very oldest family seated in this delectable spot. The young Montgomerys could with perfect propriety claim precedence at all the stagnant pools that offered superior advantages as yielding a rich harvest of tadpoles. While the mature intelligence might have considered these miniature lakes as highly undesirable, the young Montgomerys were not unmindful of their blessings. As babies clothed in shapeless garments, they launched upon the green slime their tiny fleet of chips and grown a little older it was here they waited in the happy summer days. The very dump-carts came and went like perpetual argosies, bringing riches, discarded furniture and cast-off clothing, to their very door. In merciful defiance of those hidden perils that lurk where sanitation and hygiene are unpracticed sciences, Joe's numerous family throve and multiplied. The baby carriage which had held his firstborn, Arthur, now aged fourteen, was still in use, the luster of its paint much dimmed, and its upholstery but a memory. It had trundled a succession of little Montgomerys among the cinder-piles. Indeed it was almost a feature of the landscape, for Joe's family was his chiefest contribution to the wealth of his country. There had been periods varying from a few days to a few weeks when the Montgomerys were sole tenants of that row of slab-sided houses. Their poverty being a fixed condition they were merely sometimes poorer. No transient gleam of a larger prosperity had ever illuminated the horizon of their lives, and they had never been tempted to move to other parts of the town where the ground and the rents were higher. Residents of this locality, not being burdened with any means of locomotion beyond their own legs, usually came and went by way of the high iron bridge. Their legal right-of-way, however, was by a neglected thoroughfare that had ambitiously set out to be a street, but having failed of its intention, 
presently dwindled to a pleasant country road which not far beyond crossed the river by the old wooden bridge below the depot. It was the iron bridge which Mrs. Montgomery, escorted by the daring Shrimplin, had crossed that fateful night of her interview with Judge Langham, and it was toward it that her glance was turned for many days after in the hope that she might see Joe's bulk of bone and muscle as he slouched in the direction of the home and family he had so wanted only forsaken. But a veil of mystery obscured every fact that bore on the handyman's disappearance. No eye penetrated it. No hand lifted it. Soon after Montgomery's disappearance his deserted wife fell upon evil times indeed. In spite of her bravest efforts the rent fell hopelessly in arrears. For a time her pride kept her away from the Shrimplins who might have helped her. To go to the little lamplighters was to hear bitter truths about her husband. Mr. Shrimplin's denunciations were especially fierce and scathing, for here he felt that righteousness was all on his side and that in abusing the absconding Joe he was performing a moral act. But at last Nellie's fortunes reached a crisis. An obdurate landlord set her few poor belongings in the gutter. Even in the most prosperous days their roof-tree had flourished but precariously, and now it was down and level with the dust, seeing which Mrs. Montgomery placed her youngest in the ancient vehicle which had trundled all that generation of Montgomery's, drew her apron before her eyes, and wept. But quickly rallying to the need for immediate action, she swallowed her pride and sent Arthur in quest of his uncle, who was well fitted by sobriety, industry, and thrift, to cope with such a crisis. Mr. Shrimplin's only weaknesses were such as spring from an eager childlike vanity and a nature as shy as a fawn's of whatever held even a suggestion of danger. To Custer he could brag of crimes he had never committed, but an unpaid butcher's bill would have robbed him of his sleep. Also he wore a very tender heart in his narrow chest, though he did his best to hide it by assuming a bold and hearty air, and by garnishing his conversation with what he counted the very flower of a brutal worldly cynicism. Thus it was that when Arthur had found his uncle and had stated his case, Mr. Shrimplin instantly summoned to his aid all his redoubtable powers of speech and fell to cursing the recreant husband and father. Having eased himself in this manner, and not wishing Arthur to be entirely unmindful of his vast superiority, he called the boy's attention to the undeniable fact that he, Shrimplin, could have been kicked out of doors and Joe Montgomery would not have lifted a hand to save him. Yet all this while the little lamplighter, with the boy at his heels, was moving rapidly across the flats. From the town end of the bridge youthful eyes had descried his coming, and the word was quickly passed that the uncle of all the little Montgomerys was approaching, presumably with philanthropic intent. This rumor instantly stimulated an interest on the part of the adult population, an interest which had somewhat languished owing to the incapacity of human nature to sustain an emotional climax for any considerable length of time. Untidy women and idle-looking men with the rust of inaction consuming them quickly appeared on the scene, and when the little lamplighter descended from the railway tracks it was to be greeted with something like an ovation at the hands of his sister-in-law's neighbors. His ears caught the murmur of approval that passed from lip to lip, and out of the very tail of his bleached eyes he noted the expression of satisfaction that was on every face. Even the previously obdurate landlord met him with words of apology 
and conciliation. It was a happy moment for Mr. Shrimplin, but not by so much as the flicker of an eyelash did he betray that this was so. He had considered himself such a public character since the night of the McBride murder that he now deemed it incumbent to preserve a stoic manner. The admiration of his fellows could win nothing from the sternness of his nature, so he ignored the neighbors while he was barely civil to the landlord. The big roll of bills which, with something of a flourish he produced from the pocket of his greasy overalls, settled the rent, and the neighbors noted with bated breath that the size of this roll was not perceptibly diminished by the transaction. Presently Mr. Shrimplin found himself standing alone with Nellie. The landlord had departed with his money while the neighbors, having devoted the greater part of the day to a sympathetic interest in Mrs. Montgomery's fortunes, now had leisure for their own affairs. "'Why didn't you send for me sooner?' demanded the little man with some asperity. "'No sense in having your things put out like this when you only got to put them back again.' "'If Joe was only here this would never have happened,' said Mrs. Montgomery, giving way to copious tears. But Mr. Shrimplin seemed not so sure of this. The settling of the handyman's difficulties had been one of the few extravagances he had permitted himself. His glance now fell on the small occupant of the decrepit baby carriage, and he gave a start of astonishment. Lord, he ejaculated, pointing to the child, you don't mean to tell me that's yours too? Three weeks next Sunday, said Mrs. Montgomery. Another one. Well, I don't wonder you've kept still about it. What's the use of bringing children into the world when you can't half take care of them? I didn't keep still about it. Only I had so much to worry me, said Nellie, with a shadowy sort of resentment at the little lamplighter's words and manner. It's a nice-looking baby, admitted Mr. Shrimplin, relenting. It's a boy, see? He's got his father's eyes and nose. I don't know about the eyes, but the nose is a darn sight whiter than Joe's. Maybe, though, when it's Joe's age, it will use the same brand of paint. What you got it in for Joe for? He never done nothing to you, said Joe's wife, with palpable offense. He ought to be stood up and lammed over the head with a club, observed Mr. Shrimplin, with considerable acrimony of tone. You'd have thought that being a witness would have made a man out of Joe if anything would. And how does he act? Why, he lights up. He gets to be good for something besides soaking up whiskey and spoiling his insides, and he skips town. Now, if that ain't a devil of a way for him to act, I'd like to know what you call it. He was a good man, declared Mrs. Montgomery with conviction a good man but unfortunate. Well, if he suits you, Nellie, he does. I'm glad of it, retorted Mr. Shrimplin, taking a chew of tobacco, for I don't reckon he'll ever suit anyone else. You and none of my family never like Joe, said Mrs. Montgomery. Well, why should we? demanded Mr. Shrimplin impatiently. Your wife, my own sister, too, said he should never darken her door, and he was that proud he never did. You couldn't have dragged him there said Mrs. Montgomery, and the ready tears dimmed her eyes. And you couldn't have dragged him away quick enough if he had a come. Now don't you get tearful over Joe. You can't call him no prodigal. His veal's tough old beef by this time. But I never had nothing in particular against him more than I thought he ought to be kicked clean off the face of the earth, said Mr. Shrimplin, rolling his drooping flaxen mustache fiercely between his stubby thumb and its neighboring forefinger. Such personal relations as the little lamplighter had sustained with the handyman had invariably been of the most friendly and pacific description. Esteeming Joe a gentleman of uncertain habits, 
and of criminal instincts that might at any moment be translated into vigorous action, Mr. Shrimplin had always been at much pains to placate him. In the heat of the moment, however, all this was forgotten, and Mr. Shrimplin's love of decency and rectitude promptly asserted itself. "'It's easy enough to pick flaws in a popular, good-looking man like Joe,' said Mrs. Montgomery, with whom time and absence had been at work, also and to such an extent that the first dim glint of a halo was beginning to fix itself about the curly red head of her delinquent spouse. "'And a whole lot of good them good looks of his has done you, Nellie,' rejoined Mr. Shrimplin, with a little cackle of mirth. "'He never even seen his youngest,' said Mrs. Montgomery, giving completely away to tears at this moving thought of the handyman's deprivation. "'I reckon he could even stand that,' observed Mr. Shrimplin unfeelingly. "'I bet he never knowed him apart.' "'Why, he was just wrapped up in them and me, just wrapped up,' cried Mrs. Montgomery. "'Well, he had a blame curious way of showing it. No one would ever have suspected it of him,' said Mr. Shrimplin. "'I guess this wouldn't have happened if his own folks had had more faith in Joe. That's what wore on him. I seen it wear on him,' declared Mrs. Montgomery, in a tone of melancholy conviction. "'In the main I'm a truthful man, Nellie. I wish to be, anyhow.' and I'll tell you honest I was never able to see much in Joe aside from his good looks, which I know he had, now that you call them to mind. No, I think a coat of tar and feathers would be about the thing for Joe. He's the sort of bird to wear that kind of plumage. My opinion is that you've seen the last of him. No sense in your thinking otherwise, because you're just leaving yourself open to disappointment. Yet Mr. Shrimplin remained to reinstate Mrs. Montgomery in her home. It was his expert hands that set up the cracked and rusted kitchen stove and arranged the scanty and battered furniture in the several rooms. Nor was he satisfied to do merely this, for he presently dispatched Arthur into town after an excellent assortment of groceries. All the while, however, he neglected no opportunity to elaborate for Nellie's benefit his opinions concerning the handyman's utter worthlessness. At length this good Samaritan paused from his labors and regaling himself with a fresh chew of tobacco and a parting jibe at Joe, set briskly off for his own home. The street lamps demanded his immediate attention, and it was not until his day's work was finished that he found opportunity to tell Mrs. Shrimplin of these straits to which Nellie had been reduced. He concluded by reiterating his opinion that her sister had seen the last of Joe. "'I don't know why you say that,' was Mrs. Shrimplin's unexpected rejoinder. "'Ain't I got mighty good reason to say it?' asked her husband. "'Don't you know, and ain't every one always said Joe was just too low to live? I'd like to know if it wasn't you said he should never set his foot inside your door.' "'I might say it again, and then I might,' rejoined Mrs. Shrimplin with aggravating composure. Two days later, when the Shrimplins were at breakfast, Mrs. Montgomery walked in on them. Her face was streaked with the traces of recent tears, but there was the light of happy vindication in her eyes and a soiled and crumpled letter in her hand. "'Mercy, Nellie!' exclaimed her sister. "'What's the matter now?' "'Matter? Why, I'm so happy I just don't know what to do. I've heard from my Joe.' Mrs. Shrimplin rested her hands on her hips and surveyed Nellie with eyes that seemed to hold pity and contempt in about equal proportion. "'You've heard from Joe. Well, if he was my husband, he'd have heard from me long ago,' she said and it occurred to Mr. Shrimplin that his wife was wonderfully consistent in her inconsistencies. "'Well, and what have you got against Joe?' demanded Mrs. Montgomery with ready anger. 
"'She ain't got nothing new, Nellie,' said Mr. Shrimplin, desirous of preserving the peace. "'Well, she's mighty quick to misjudge him. Look!' And she drew from the envelope she held in her hand a dirty greenback. "'He sent me twenty dollars, my man has. Does that look like he'd forgotten me or his children?' protested Nellie in a voice of happy triumph. "'I bet it's counterfeit. I'd go slow on trying to pass it,' said Mr. Shrimplin when he had somewhat recovered from the shock of the sudden announcement. It was plain that Nellie had never thought of any such possibility as this, for the light died out of her eyes. "'How can I find out whether it's good or not?' she faltered. "'Let me look at it,' said Mr. Shrimplin. Mrs. Montgomery placed the bill in his hands. Her face was keen and pinched with anxiety as she awaited the little man's verdict. "'It's genuine, all right,' he at length admitted grudgingly. "'I knew it was,' cried Nellie, her miserable suspicions put at rest. "'Well, you better spend it quick and get some good out of it before old Joe comes back and wants the change,' advised Mr. Shrimplin. "'What does he say?' questioned Mrs. Shrimplin. "'He don't say a word. There was nothing but the bill.' "'Well, maybe it wasn't Joe sent it after all,' said the little lamplighter. "'The writing on the envelope's his. I'd know it anywhere. I guess he couldn't trust himself to write. But he'll come back. My man will. Maybe he's on his way now,' exclaimed Nellie. "'Ain't there no postmark?' asked Mrs. Shrimplin. "'Why, I never thought to look.' But Nellie's face fell when she did look. "'It was mailed at Denver,' she said in an awestruck voice. Her man seemed at the very ends of the earth, and his return became a doubtful thing. "'Well, I wouldn't talk about this to the police or anybody. They ain't been able to find Joe, and I wouldn't be the one to tell them where he's at,' advised Mr. Shrimplin. "'They've stopped coming to the house,' said Nellie but she looked inquiringly at Mr. Shrimplin. Where the police were concerned she had faith in his masculine understanding. Joe had always seemed to know a great deal about the police, she remembered. I reckon old Joe had his own reasons for skipping out, and they must have looked good to him. No, I can't see that you are bound to help the police. The police ain't helped you. And Mr. Shrimplin returned to the scrutiny of the bill in his hand. That was the profound mystery. No one knew better than he that Joe was not given to such prodigal generosity. Neither were twenty-dollar bills frequent with him. End of chapter 19 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com